We have two more weeks to go before we begin the first season of the church year, the beginning of the church year, Advent, which is coming up on the last Sunday in November. So we have this Sunday and we have next Sunday the Feast of Christ the King, and then we begin the Christian year once again. So the themes and the readings, certainly for this Sunday and to some degree last Sunday, but we didn't read them because it was All Saints Sunday, have a, a, a change, a switching gears, a more um, a themes about expectation, hope, joy, and anxiousness. All of the readings today are about uh, how to live and how to cope in anxious times. The reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, the reading from 1 Thessalonians, and certainly the gospel. And it's about something that is certainly no stranger to, to all of us. You know, people could make the claim and, and uh, be correct that every age is an anxious age to some degree. I believe that certainly in the last several decades, we live in an uncommonly anxious period. This, this culture is chronically anxious. And figuring out the reasons for why that is so uh, are complex. I think it has something to do with the pace of change. It may have something to do with uh, the way in which uh, people are uh, living life at a velocity that is probably not healthy for us and convincing ourselves that it is absolutely necessary, you know, in one sense, a lot of us are like the monkey in the test. We've put our hand in the jar. We've grasped the nut. And now we can't get our hand out of the jar. So the only way you get your hand out of the jar is to let go of the nut. So who's going to let go first? That's the big deal, right? I mean, some other monkey may be getting ahead of you, right? So it's complicated. Maybe we'll invent some technological thing that will allow us to get our hand out of the jar with the nut uh, in some way. Who knows? I know there are people at this very moment who are working on it. <laughs> the reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah is <clears throat> at the conclusion or the, or the concluding chapters of the book of the prophet Isaiah. In biblical scholarship, we might refer to this person as Third Isaiah. And they're writing about the return from the Babylonian captivity. This is so important for Christian people because as we begin the season of Advent and we think about who Jesus is and what his, his earthly ministry meant, uh, a large part of it for the people that first saw him and heard him uh, were thinking in terms of exile and return. And there were a lot of people who were alive at the time of Jesus who believed that the return from exile that is being described in this reading that took place three, two or three hundred years before had not been completed yet. Even though in Jerusalem the temple was being rebuilt, had been rebuilt, they were doing these other things, that somehow the exile, the restoration had not taken place. So it will be a big theme in ancient Israel uh, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, both in his words and those who heard him, that he signals and in his person represents the completion. 
the age where healing and reconciliation is now possible. But more to the point, as Isaiah says in more than one place, God's healing, reconciling power, God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness is not merely being extended to the people of the covenant, the people of Israel. It is being extended to everybody. And the message of Jesus is that God's saving embrace is for all humanity. And maybe more to the point, each person who believes that and becomes part of the community of faith we call church is an instrument of that reconciliation and restoration. So what is described in this reading is kind of a lot of hyperbole, you know. I mean, animals that are usually preying on each other aren't. Uh, There's going to be lengthening of ages. There's going to be prosperity. There's going to be general health and welfare. It's going to be a, a, a great thing. My grandfather had a book in his office called Kinship with All Life. I remember this as a kid going in there. I got to thinking about this. I didn't think about this when I wrote my sermon, but I mentioned it at 9 o'clock. Some of you may may or may not know this. My family owned the oldest pet shop in the United States. It was founded in 1849 by my great-great-grandfather, David Neely Robeson, in San Francisco. And when I was a kid, we were in the pet business, but we were also in the zoological animal business and the research animal business. My grandfather invented the product kitty litter, which is now a huge thing, and uh, a lot of that kind of stuff. When I was about 12, my grandfather became the president of the San Francisco Zoological Society. And one of the things that some of the big givers and supporters of the Zoological Society could get a perk was that once a year they were given, if they wanted to go on it, they were given a behind-the-scenes tour of the zoo in the middle of the night, 11 or 12 o'clock at night. The animals were all asleep in the the animal house and everything. So uh, my brother and I went with my grandfather and uh, the people that were on the tour. Carrie Baldwin was the director of the zoo, the curator of the zoo. We all walked around and we all saw these animals. So we got to the elephant house, and one of the keepers was there with us and uh, opened this enormous door, metal door, slid it. And we walked into a room as large as this, ceiling as high as this, and out came three elephants, huge elephants. I was about 12 years old. I was absolutely scared to death. These elephants had been sold by my grandfather, the Fleischacker family, when they opened the Fleischacker Zoo in the late 1920s. So this was 25 or 30 years before that. And I can remember that the elephants walked out, and the oldest and largest elephant was an elephant named Margaret, who took her trunk and put it out and started to smell my grandfather with her trunk. And then she walked up near him and turned around so she was side by side with him and she took her trunk and laid it over his shoulder. 
And I realized that she knew who he was. She remembered him. And it uh, tells you that story about elephants never forgetting may very well be true. These are Indian elephants, by the way, which are much easier to work with than African elephants. But Margaret was there, and she just stood there for five minutes. The other elephants were swaying around, and I remember while this happened, my grandfather took a loaf of Wonder Bread and pulled the wrapper off of it and gave it to one of the elephants who took it in their trunk and ate it in one thing. Went, boom, and ate the bread. So it said something to me about kinship with all life because I remembered that uh, incident. There was more than one in, in my life with him, but uh, that was, was one of them. That's the kind of thing Isaiah uh, is talking about to some degree in this reading. God's restorative purposes, the harmony of all the, the living creatures. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to hope for. In Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, by the way, the epistles to the Thessalonians are the earliest literature in the New Testament that Paul wrote. They're the first. So they reflect a particular uh, understanding of what the church is and what's going to happen. And one of the features of the early Pauline writing is that Jesus is going to come again immediately, anytime soon. And even by the writing of this epistle, there were a number of people in the Thessalonian community who were going, well, he's not here yet. There were some who believed that because of this reality, they didn't need to do anything. They were just going to float down a stream of grace, eat, drink, and be merry, because Jesus is coming at any time. Work is unnecessary. And as happens, uh, people who uh, are idle tend to become, as it says in this reading, busybodies. What's new in church life, right? <laughs> Somebody's got a better way to understand what somebody else ought to be doing. My grandfather had a term for the, those kind of people. It wasn't unique to him, but in his era, it was a common description. Sidewalk superintendents. <laughs> you know? People who are uh, prepared to speak... Uh, at great length on other people's faults and how they ought to uh, amend their life and to move forward. They were making no net contribution to uh, any understanding of how then must we live, which was the question that Christian people began to ask themselves uh, from the jump. In the Catechism, of the in the Book of Common Prayer, it says, what is the duty of all Christians? The duty of all Christians is to follow Christ, to come together week by week for corporate worship, and to work, pray, and give for the spread of the kingdom of God. I don't think that's a, f a complete and thoroughgoing uh, description of the duty of, of all Christians, but it's a good start. And the people in Thessalonica who thought that uh, they didn't need to do anything didn't think about this. They thought about just their idleness and so forth. 
There are names for this. This cropped up, by the way, in all kinds of Christian communities, and we run into it even in the Gospels, which were written later than Paul's letters. And we run into it with people who thought, we just don't have to do anything, or more to the point, we have no moral or ethical obligations to creating a society where it is easier for people to be good because it doesn't matter. And you know, this kind of Christian thinking has influenced people right up to this day. Suppose you were a fundamentalist Christian who believed the Bible neat as, as literally true. And you thought that Jesus was going to come any minute. And then you got appointed Secretary of the Interior. Do you really care whether or not all the redwoods get cut down? What difference does it make? Right? How does it influence public policy? If somebody were to say, you know, well, all these things don't matter. Jesus is going to come again. It's all transitory. It won't make any difference. In a few minutes, I'm going to speak about the impermanence of institutions, buildings, emotional patterns. And yet, at the same time, it seems reasonable to assume, and what Paul is getting at here is, you need to model yourself after me and some of the people who came to this community because we seek to strike a balance between our faith in the grace of God and our personal responsibility. And more to the point, through, the prayer, through prayer, both public and private, through our own spiritual discernment, we have come to realize that we are part of God's plan for the cosmos. We have a role to play. And that the transformation of human society, the transformation of all souls, is not going to take place somewhere else. It's going to take place here. And we need to be part of that undertaking. And that's what Paul means when he describes this and speaks critically of the outlook of the people who have become indolent, thinking that that is the way in which they are to operate as good Christians. And whenever we see it in any age, we should preach against it. The gospel from Luke uh, is, a, is about something that uh, has to do with the impermanence of uh, all institutions, of buildings, of the transitoriness of the way we think about what is what. Jesus is speaking about uh, the temple. He's in the temple. He's talking about all of the, the, the apocalyptic things that uh, are to occur moving forward. Now, here's what you need to know to understand this reading uh, maybe a little bit more clearly. Luke's gospel was written in 85 A.D. In 70 A.D., between 68 and 70 A.D., the Roman imperial government came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. They burnt it down. They wrecked it. It was, a, it was, by the time of the writing of Luke's gospel, it was a heap. It had been completely destroyed. And by virtue of that, Luke's community understood that what had been said in this gospel had come true. How are we to cope in the midst of anxious times? What sense are we going to make out of this? What is the role of the community of faith? Luke, uh, unique to all the gospel writers, 
believed that it was part of the plan of God that the church come into being. That the church is necessary for the fulfillment of God's plan for the cosmos. And by extension, if he writes a gospel about the presence of the Holy Spirit and the person of Jesus Christ, and then he writes volume two, the book of Acts, which is about the transfer of the Holy Spirit of God to the people of God in each of us, that somehow we are now to be both the beneficiaries and the fiduciaries of this spirit. We are to continue the work. And that it is part of the plan of God that that be so, that we have a role to play, to cooperate with the divine initiative. So Luke believes that the saving work of Christ is not going to occur in a once and for all fashion for just individuals. It is going to be for everyone. And that it is going to be our job to labor to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. And that this saving work will be accomplished within human history, not somewhere else. There's a whole lot of Christianity around that says, this is all going to happen when we go somewhere else. There's no going anywhere else. It's going to take place here. And you are part of it in big and small ways. This connects to Advent because this requires, in the midst of all this anxiousness and turmoil, some understanding of reading the signs of the times and bringing to bear the full force and effect of your intellectual powers, not only on the deep things of Christian faith and belief, but on the big issues that we face uh, as a culture. And that while it may be true that everyone has lived in anxious times, each time has some species of uniqueness. And so you and I are going to need to get clarity about what it is that we're to do in the midst of all of this. But the lesson that Luke's gospel teaches, the lesson that the reading from Isaiah teaches, is that God's healing, reconciling power always is present to us. It never leaves, even if each of us may feel from time to time that it's very far away that it is at the center and the heart of our self-understanding as Christian people that God unconditionally accepts, forgives, and loves us. And that the great liberation that that knowledge brings can allow us to do great things in the world. So this week, give thanks for the opportunity. Give thanks for the opportunity to strike a middle course between eat, drink, and be merry and becoming a drudge. Maybe that requires, in our culture, a little time management. There's a term. Learning how to do that, what it is that's important. But one thing that Isaiah was sure of, and one thing that the Savior was sure of, is that God's abundant presence is always there. Amen.